It leads me tonight to another Sermon on the Mount passage. You can't help but be excited about the golden rule. And I know it's, I, I know that it's not exciting in that it's easy. No, no, no. It's exciting in that it is positive. It's so positive. There's so much possibility on the other side of it. Like I'll ask you rhetorically, think about this. What happens in your world if you live out the golden rule? In case you don't know the golden rule, in a nutshell, do unto others you'd have them do unto you. I mean, yes, there's a thousand ways to say it. We're going to see a few tonight. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an action command, and it elicits a response. What I love about it is the response it elicits is not from your neighbor. The response it elicits is from you, and that affects your neighbor. And I can't help but be excited about it because it's so positive that, if I, that I realize that if I implemented this into my life, I would make an impact whether I like it or not. If you would live the golden rule, you would make an impact. It might not always be easy. It might not always be fun, but you would make an impact on your immediate world. When I say don't worry so much about changing the world until you've done something to change yours, well, you can't get any better than do to your neighbor the way you wish they do to you because it's your neighbor. You know, you can't fix Ukraine. You can help. You can send aid, you can pray, you can be a support to someone who knows someone there. That's probably all you can do. But you can deal with your coworker and your next door neighbor and your spouse and your kids and your enemy. And not only can you, you must. That's why I, you know, we said this a little bit last week about the social media connected world. It's made us concerned about all this other stuff in the world Sometimes I wonder if we're more concerned with the stuff we can't do anything about because we can't do anything about it. You know, because like, oh, I can get all fired up about this issue. Deep down in my heart, I know I can't really do anything about it, but oh, I sure am going to throw a fit so someone out there that can do something will do something. And all the while, we're doing nothing about the stuff we could actually do something about. And that gets a big stop sign in front of it when you get to the golden rule. It's just not allowed. It's Jesus forcing me to confront me about the way I confront you. And I, that excites me because you're not going to be able to just sneak out of this one. No matter where you are, you're going to have to at least take a look at this idea. And I want to show you the verse from Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them... For this is the law and the prophets. There's a lot. It doesn't look like much. It's one sentence. You go, That's, this is an easy one. We'll be out here in five minutes. Well, you know better than that anyway. But <laughs> even if you didn't know better than that, no, we won't. There's a lot going on here. And there's, a, there's some context we want to really dig into tonight as well. But there's something I want you to notice that doesn't really, it's not really there. It's not on the surface. You've got to really pay attention. Whatever you want men to do to you, you do also to them. Don't worry about the law and the prophets part yet. We're going to get to that. In fact, that's huge. Huge and overlooked, but we're going to intentionally overlook it at first. Because I want you to notice that this is not a passive verse. This is an active verse. In other words, whatever you want done, do it. 
Whatever you want people to do to you, you do to them. Not, hey, when people do stuff to you, respond better. Hey, when people do stuff to you, love them in return. We've got a little bit of that in the Sermon on the Mount where it's like, um, when men revile you and persecute you, forgive them, love them, pray for your persecutor. So they hurt you, you respond with prayer, you respond with forgiveness, you respond with love. And it can cause us to kind of think the Sermon on the Mount is a little bit passive. It's a little bit more response heavy. It's not really an active sermon. It's just sort of you go through the, 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 the world as a Christian. And I do air quote Christian because, you know, whatever you want to call following Jesus. But you go through the world as a Christian. And what's really being asked of you in the Sermon on the Mount is to check how you respond. That is being asked of you, but that's not all that's being asked of you. It's not all that's being demanded of you because the golden rules kind of flips things. It says that it's not just passivity. The kingdom is not built of a bunch of people who gave their hearts to Christ. They can't wait to go to heaven. Fingers crossed. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. I don't really want to deal with this stuff in the world. I'm going to stay as far away from it as possible. But if they come and attack me, if they persecute me, if they make fun of me, I am required to forgive them. I am required to love them. And I am required to pray for them. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave them alone. They're going to leave me alone. And the golden rule doesn't let that happen. Because the golden rule is not passive. Jesus is not saying, sit around, wait, when people attack you, watch how you respond. No, he's saying, if you wish the world could be this way, make it. Make it so. If you wish he would treat you this way, beat him to the punch. Treat him that way. You can't be passive and actively live the golden rule. And that's why I love it. Now, I really wrestled with calling it the golden rule because I'm not real crazy. I love this verse. I'm not just not real crazy about the title. Not real crazy about calling it the golden rule, but I have to because everyone does. And if you go looking in the Sermon on the Mount and you're looking for my sermons through there someday going, I wonder when he preached this or this or this. If you get creative and don't call it the golden rule, they're never going to find it. Everyone calls it that. The reason I'm not crazy about that is I don't really like to think of it as a rule, like, you know, one of the Ten Commandments or something. Um, but that was my caveat. That's me saying I'm not nuts about it, but we're going to call it that anyway. All right? So we leave, it, we leave that as it is, the golden rule. Here's another version of the same rule, Luke 6.31 and all I want to do is just show you another version. I'm not going to try to live here in Luke, but Jesus says it this way. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Active, not passive. Active, not passive. Here comes your shocker. Active, not passive. Not original. Jesus is not being original. Not really. Okay, not trying to be sneaky, but let me just say it this way. Jesus is not the first person to come up with this concept. But I do think when you watch a few of the others, you'll notice Jesus does something a little different with the concept. And that's because Jesus is sourced from his father and from the kingdom. But let me give you just a few examples. Basically do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Active. Do in the way that you wish they would do to you. All right, here's one of the earliest usages. 18th century BC, 
in case you have trouble with that math, that's a long time before Jesus, all right? About 17, 1800 years before Christ. It's actually somewhere around the 20th to the mid 17th century BC. Egyptian writing says, do to the doer to make him do. This is just short of clunky in the English. I have no idea how to read it to you in ancient Egyptian, but it translates as do to the doer to make him do. It's a little bit like do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. We'll come back to that in a moment. 7th century BC, Talias of Miletus. Here comes the, here comes the Greeks. Avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Ooh, pretty slick. That could be on a t-shirt somewhere. Avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. That's a good principle. Basically saying, if you would cut other people down for doing it, maybe don't do it. It sounds a little bit like when you spot the speck in your neighbor's eye, you know you have a plank in your own, right? All right, here's another 7th century BC Confucius. Here's the Chinese 700 years before Jesus. Do not do to others what you would not like yourself. All right, if you wouldn't like it being done to you, maybe don't do it to someone else. And then we go back to the Greeks, 5th century BC, Isos. Isocrates, contemporary of Plato, do not do to others that which angers you when they do it to you. And if you wanted another one, you could jump into the first century in Rome. Seneca has an almost verbatim to Jesus's. It probably happens somewhere late in the life of Christ. Now, just take a look. Just keep these here for a moment. Do you notice a trend for almost two millennium before Jesus, scholars were writing essentially the same thing with one real difference in the way it's worded by all of these, and there's many more, and with the way it's worded by Jesus. Notice these are regressive negatives, don'ts. They are restrictive. Don't do to others what angers you when they do it to you. Don't do to others the kind of stuff you wouldn't like yourself. Don't do what you'd blame other people for doing. And even the one that is do, that is active, look at what it's doing. Do to the doer to make him do. In other words, do to people to get them to do what you wish they would do. Not do to people what you wish they would do to you. Do to people so that they will do. In other words, crush, manipulate, twist, arms, whatever you got to do. There's a negative connotation to every single one of these. Now go back to Jesus's in Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Jesus's isn't don't. Jesus's is do. This is why I say it's not an active command or a passive command. It's an active command. And here's how it gets reinterpreted in a New Testament light. I already showed you some secular stuff. Here's how it gets looked at through a New Testament lens. Paul says this in Galatians 5.14. All of the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Slow down there for a moment. Now, Paul doesn't have the book of Matthew. We have no reason to believe that Matthew is in any kind of print form in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Um, no matter when you date it, 
and some date it as early as the mid-50s, some date it as late as 80. Whenever you date it, odds are Paul doesn't get his hands on a copy of what we would call the Gospel of Matthew and, or Luke. And so it's unlikely that Paul reads Jesus say this. He would have had a knowledge of his, those Greek philosophers and the Stoics of saying it. And yet what Paul sees is that you could actually sum the entirety of the law up in the idea that you love your neighbor as yourself, that you treat people in the way you wish you were treated. All right. Gave you some Greeks, gave you some Egyptians, gave you some Chinese, gave you some first century Jesus, gave you some mid to late first century early church. What was the Jewish concept of this idea? Because I want you to remember, Jesus is not a Christian. Jesus is a Jewish man living in the first century. Jesus has studied Torah. He has studied the teachings of the fathers. Let me give you another one, and then we're going to look at Torah. The Babylonian Talmud, in case you wonder what this is, the Talmud is a compilation of written teachings and opinions of thousands of rabbis from before Christ through at least the 5th century. Okay. Most of the Babylonian Talmud was assembled somewhere in the 14th century, but it was a collection of writings that encompassed five to six to 700 years. Our Jewish scholars don't think like Christian scholars. Okay. Most Christian scholars pick up their Bible and then try to interpret it, and they read commentators, and if they agree with the commentator, they read more of him. And if they disagree with the commentator, they read less of him. And if they really disagree with the commentator, they deem him a heretic, and they burn his commentary. Our Jewish brothers and friends don't treat studying the Old Testament this way. They look at not only Torah, but they would look at something like the Talmud, which had thousands of opinions written down, and they would read them, and those opinions would not lead to solid answers. They would lead to arguments. They would lead to discussions, and they would lead to conversations. I think I told you before, Christians use scriptures to stop conversation. Jews use scriptures to start conversations, and man, is that ever true. In Jesus' day, they would have had these, these oral traditions floating around, though the Talmud wasn't yet assembled. And the most famous of them all in Jesus' day was a man by the name of Hillel the Elder. He actually died when Jesus was a teenager. We have zero evidence that Hillel would have ever met Jesus. And if he had, Jesus would have just been some snot-nosed kid from the backwaters of Galilee. It wouldn't have moved Hillel. But Hillel did say this, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow... This is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. Go and learn. What a statement. Okay. Jesus grows up hearing this. This statement. What is hateful to you, don't do that to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. Go and learn. It could be why Jesus says... Do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. This is the whole Torah. This is everything you've ever heard. Everything you think you know about the Old Testament, Jesus says, could be wrapped up in this idea that you did to people as you'd have them do to you. Let me show you a couple examples of that from the Torah. Luke 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. Okay, start there. You don't get to be vengeful. You don't get to bear a grudge. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the covenant-keeping God. Why does he have to remind you of that? Because you and I are in covenant. You don't break it. You don't get to take it into your own hands when people break it against you. Sneak down to 34, same chapter, Leviticus 19:34. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now look at this. This is actually both. In 18, you don't get to bear a grudge against the children of your people. You got to love them the way you love yourself. In 34, almost as if God knows we're going to argue and go, well, well I know I got to treat my own family good, but what about this guy that lives over here? I don't even know him. We don't have the same skin tone. He wasn't born in my country. He didn't grow up on my street. He didn't act like me. I don't have to treat him the same way, do I? Because you only really got to treat the people that you really love. You got to treat them well, right? He, knew, he knows our insistence. And so the stranger gets to be as one as if he was born among you. You got to love him as you love yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then once again, I am the covenant-keeping Adonai. I am the covenant God who created you. And because you and I are in covenant, this is how you should be treating your neighbor. So when Jesus says, love, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, this is the body of stuff he's got to build off of. A bunch of guys from the Greek world, the Chinese world. I'm not claiming Jesus knew all that they had all said it, but my point is, is if all over the globe for 2,000 years before Jesus, people are writing this stuff down. Jesus doesn't just come out with some statement on the Sermon on the Mount, brand new. But he does take the statement and attach it to the law and say, everything the law and the prophets was trying to teach you to do was to proactively touch the world in a way in which you wish they would treat you. Be proactive in this. All of the law and the prophets. I don't think Jesus, he didn't double down on it. He didn't try to explain it. I don't know that I'm going to do any better trying to do any more, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. It's this thought. I think if you held this thing up, This is Malachi back. This is Genesis to Malachi. This poor thing's falling apart. All right. This is Genesis to Malachi, Old Testament. And if you hold this, most Christians would say this is our salvation. Okay. And then they would say, this is is what grace people say, by the way. This is our salvation. This is what we're saved from. As if we're at odds. With this, like this has put us under the law, this has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and so the only good you can do back here is to go find Jesus. So go into this, this Old Testament, and see where you can find Jesus. Because if you can find Jesus there, then you can redeem the story. Then it's not just three Hebrew boys going into a fiery furnace; it's you going into the furnace of life, and Jesus walks with you. You know that's a good sermon. It is a good sermon. It's great. It's a way to preach that. Jesus is there. However, (laughs) the idea that we've somehow been redeemed from this, that what this is doing is putting us under bondage while this is releasing us would have been a pretty foreign concept to a man that said, do unto others you'd have them to do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. What this is trying to do 
is get you to, to treat the world the way you wish the world would treat you. It's trying to get you to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. It's trying to get you to treat the stranger the way you'd treat your family member. And it's working really hard to do it. And it tries to do it in the law, which is, say, primarily right here. And then it's trying to get you to do it in the prophets, which is primarily right here. And then comes the prophet of them all, a man named Jesus, who says, hey, guess what? This whole thing back here was really just trying to get you to treat your neighbor the way you wish the world could look. Because if you would do that, then what might happen in the world? I've told you, I tell you all of this because I want you to know that when you open the pages of the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, you don't have to be at odds with it. You let it inform you and you let it speak to you. And when you run into things you don't understand, just go back to the basics. What's the basic? I'm so excited about this lesson because it is Jesus' definition of the basic. He goes... The entire law and the prophets are wrapped up in one statement. This whole thing right here, one idea, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Have you read this? Have you read this? Because if you read this without that golden key, maybe it should be the golden key then you run the risk of not realizing what this is trying to do. And that's why we get frustrated with the Old Testament. And Jesus comes along and says, the whole thing was just trying to get you to realize that you should treat the world the way you wish the world would treat you. It was not to be passive. It was to be active. It was not just to lay back and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. It was to interject into this ingredient, this seed. I like and I'm going to give you context, but I like the way the message says it. Good old Eugene Peterson. Leave it, to, leave it to Pastor Peterson to say it right. Listen to the message version of Matthew 7, 12. Here is a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you, then grab the initiative and do it for them. I love this sentence. Add up God's law and the prophets, and this is what you get. I like that line. Add up the law and the prophets, and what would you get? Now, in a, Christ, in a Christological centered hermeneutic, big, big seminary words, but you know what I'm talking about. In a Christ centered hermeneutic of the Bible, Christologically centered, add the law and the prophets, and you get Jesus, right? Christologically centered. What's that look like? In practicality, add up the law and the prophets, what do you get? Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So it's one thing to go, if you add the whole Bible and you get Jesus, how many of you realize that you can do that and you're kind of off the hook? That's like the I'll be praying for you answer. You know? Like, boy, I'm really going through it. I'll be praying for you. Jesus is your answer, brother. And then you just drive away. Jesus is your answer. And they go, well, what's that mean? So you can add it all up, and Jesus is the answer. But what's that mean? Add it all up and do unto others you'd have them do unto you. That's what Jesus looks like. That's the message that Christ is revealing and that Christ is sending. Okay, all of that for this context. 
because all of that was a prelude to where you got to land, in my opinion, when you teach the golden rule. And that is that Jesus doesn't stop talking. By the way, the golden rule starts with therefore, okay? It starts with therefore, do unto others you'd have them do unto you. And the reason it starts with therefore, of course, is because there's stuff in front of it. And the passage that's in front of it is the famous ask, seek, and knock. If your kid asks for a fish, you wouldn't give him a stone. If they, uh, or, or bread, you would... It, if your kid asked for fish, you wouldn't give him a serpent. If he asked for bread, you wouldn't give him a stone. If you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good things to you? Therefore, do unto others you'd have him do unto you. Why therefore? Because you know you're a son. Everything you have is a gift of God. Therefore, treat the world as if you're a son, and you know that everything you have is a gift of God. Let me ask you this. What did you do to earn a gift? Nothing. So don't make people earn anything from you. This is Jesus' point. If your father is good and he gives you a gift, don't make the world around you earn that same goodness. And then this happens. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law of the prophets. Next verse, enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. About six months or so ago in our South Carolina meetings, we did a message called The Narrow Gate. We preached this, we preached this passage, and we preluded this passage with the golden rule. That tempted me to skip this entirely because that was only six months ago. I was like, there's people that are watching every week. They've already heard that sermon. But I didn't want to do that because in that message, we didn't really lay into the golden rule. We just laid it out there and then preached the straight gate, narrow, uh, broad way following it. I wanted to flip that around this time and really hone in on that golden rule without abandoning this because this becomes key. This is a passage that has caused people to say things like this. Salvation is very narrow, very hard. There's only one way to get in, but not very many of you are really saved. Most people think they're saved, but they're on the broad way that leads to destruction, and they're out here partying it up, and they're going to dead churches with dead preachers preaching false doctrines, and they're all going to burn in hell, but there's really only one way to God, and guess what? You're the lucky ones. You found it. Welcome to our church, which gives you the narrow way to get to God, because I I've never been to one yet where the preacher preached that sermon and then went, I'm still looking for the narrow way, aren't you? Amen, preacher. We're going to find it someday. No, they've always all got it. They got the narrow way. Everybody else is in the broad way. Everybody else is probably wrong. Everybody else is going to hell, but we got the narrow way. And the narrow way is also defined by a bunch of moralities. If you do this, dress this way, act this way, walk this way, talk this way, identify this way, you're not on the straight way, you're on some crooked way, you're on some broad way. And the way is always defined by moralities, moralities, moralities. And yet, contextually, Jesus told you what the narrow way is. Therefore, do unto others you'd have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. Enter in by the narrow way. Let's look narrow way first. Narrow way is the golden rule. Why would he drop it in right after the golden rule if the narrow way is not the golden rule? Do to other people the way you wish they do to you. This is the law and the prophets. 
This is entering in by the narrow way. The narrow way is the way of eternal life. The life of the kingdom, active, not passive. It is not just set back and respond. It's go treat people the way you wish the world would treat you. Few of us find it because, quite frankly, few of us seek it. Because that's not as much as as excited as I get over this sermon. I told you just because it's exciting don't mean it's easy. Few people really go look for the narrow way. It's why few people find it. Because it isn't easy to treat others the way that you'd like to be treated. It's not. Just think about it for a moment. It requires you sometimes to choke down how you really want to treat them. It requires you to take inventory on everything they're doing to you and decide. And you know what? Scratch all of that. Because I'm really being reactive. I mean, because, yes, part of the kingdom is reactive. If you treat me a certain way, then I have a responsibility to be a citizen of the kingdom and respond, not just react. But that's not really the golden rule. It's not that I wait for Jackson to do something to me and then I got to be better than Jackson. I'm going to show him because he expects that I'm going to retaliate, but I'm not going to retaliate. I'm a citizen of the kingdom. That's not the golden rule. The golden rule is, you know how I wish Jackson would treat me? He doesn't. I wish he would. I'm going to treat him that way. The way I wish he would treat me. Because the second I say it, everything he's ever done to me is going to come rushing back to me. I'm going to go, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't like the way he treats me. I'm not going to beat him to this. That's why it's a narrow gate. Because there's really only one way. There's not 15 ways. There's just the way of treating him the way I'd like to be treated. To see them as that valuable, and quite frankly, it's impossible to do it if you don't know your own value. This is why this comes at the end of where we were last week when we were talking about validation and the reason you try to be validated is because you try to be valuable and if you don't find validation you don't know you're valuable so Jesus gets to the end of the story and he goes don't you know you're more valuable than many sparrows don't you know you're more valuable than the lilies of the field and then if you keep reading he comes all the way down there and goes here's how valuable you are you're a son and if you ask dad for bread he's not going to give you a stone and if you ask him for fish he's not going to give you a snake and by the way since you know you're a son and you know your dad's good and you know you're valuable why don't you go treat the world the way you wish the world would treat you. I know that's not easy. It's also so hard. It's the narrow gate. Few of you are going to find it because few of you know how valuable you are. And if you didn't know how valuable you are, you'd be able to treat other people with value. Then this is really the capstone of last week's lesson. You cannot treat the world as if they are valuable if you don't believe you are valuable to the Father. Why would you? You don't think you're valuable. You're not going to give any value anywhere else. It's impossible to treat them this way if you don't know your value. Okay, that's the narrow side. Let's go to the wide gate. This is the next part of the verse. The gate is wide and the road is wide and easy. Now I want you to look at your own copy. It does not say what I put. Gate is wide, the road is wide. Let me tell you why it doesn't say it. Your oldest Greek translations include the word easy, which I think is... Really cool. Your oldest translations, rather, 
include the word easy. The gate is wide, the road is wide, and the road is easy. Okay, so let's, I put that in there for that reason because it exists in some of our ancient texts. The wide gate and the wide and easy road is living every other way. And let me tell you why it's easy. It's easy because you can just react and you can do whatever you perceive you need to do in order to get by. Just survive, man. People do stuff to you, just do whatever you want back to them. What do you need to do to get ahead? You need to step on people, step on people. You need to crush other people, just crush other people. You don't have to go create the world the way you wish it would be. You just accept the way the world is and you try to get by. It's dog eat dog, man. People are gonna do this to you, you gotta do it back to them. Unless you just wanna get ran over. This is my fear with this, with this hyper aggression, hyper masculinity message that's starting to hit the pulpit. Like we're really nervous that, that if we show ourselves vulnerable, we're, gonna, we're not going to look manly. I know I'm speaking to the men, but maybe not just the men. Maybe there's more that need to hear this. We have this idea that's kind of permeating the pulpit in the American church that I would be offended if I was a woman. I'm offended enough as a man. I'd be really offended if I were a woman that the greatest perception of a male is some form of hyper-masculinity that is, you know, has to be categorized as alpha. It's like everybody wants to be the alpha male. They're, they're so scared of all the other categorizations that it's not manly enough. And that's somehow gotten put over into the pulpit and the presentation of the gospel to the point that I think it's part of the reason why we're a little offended with Jesus, at least with parts of Jesus' life, and, and really only try to accent other angles of his life while ignoring large portions of Jesus, and especially in his conversations. It's also why the Sermon on the Mount is rather offensive, because it doesn't let you dominate the world. It doesn't let you crush everything. And this is our Jesus that we're following. And I think this idea is, I think we think, I mean, I come up in ministry circles where if you were to ask about the power of the Holy Spirit, the thing that sort of made preachers' eyes light up was boldness. They got excited when they thought someone was bold. Now, maybe I'm all alone in this, but I did, when I came up, that was what, guys, that's what they talked about when they talked about the Holy Ghost. Power of the Holy Ghost will make you bold. And what I found was a lot, and I didn't see this for years, but a lot of guys were using boldness as a mask for arrogance and meanness. Because what they was calling bold was just mean. And they would attack people. And that was considered some sort of super masculine, like this hyper-anointed thing was to go after people and throw your authority around and use the weight, you know, the power of the Holy Ghost. And, and it's why the quote-unquote meek and lowly Jesus really is a hard sell for a lot of people because they've mistaken this action, this work of the Holy Spirit. I think what we've done, and I know this is, this feels like I'm out in the weeds. I promise I'm not. I'm trying to bring it, bring it back. 
I think what we've done is we've mistaken the broad way for the way. Because the broad way, the easy way, is just beat people up, man. Just point out problems and boss people around and be, be, be Holy Ghost bold and, and blame it on the Holy Ghost. Get up and say whatever you want. Blame it on the Holy Ghost. It's the easy way out. Let me tell you another easy way out. You don't have to study the Bible. Just watch the news. And when gas prices go up and foreign countries invade other countries and the politicians vote on something, get up and make those your three points Sunday. And just hammer away at socioeconomic issues. Sprinkle a couple of Bible verses in there. You want to know what you've done? You've chosen the easy way that leads to destruction because you refuse to go proactively make the world better by creating the space you want to live in. It, instead, you just curse the darkness. And that's the easy way that leads to destruction. And it's easy to get on it, and it's easy to stay there. Why would you choose any other way? Because you can just react and do whatever you think needs to be done to get by. That's exactly how we preach. React to what you watched on the news. Get up and say whatever you think you need to say to get by or build your church. Because people are just currency. They're stepping stones. They are to be bartered and traded. If you don't like it here, get out. This is the way it's going to be. They're not places where people can come and get healed. They're places where people can come and be gambled on and used as cannon fodder. And if you don't like it, there's something wrong with you. Get under the spout where the glory comes out. It'll transform you. You'll start to think differently. You'll start to act differently. Instead of getting down on our knees and washing someone's feet. Because it's a lot harder to do that. And it's a lot harder to go create that kind of space in the world. You get yours no matter what. This is destruction. And I even posit that maybe it's mutual destruction. It's offered by the system of man. It's easy to find. No labor intense involved. You got what you're looking for. Jesus says it'll be the opposite of the golden rule. I used to say the broad way is the way where you can just sin like crazy and think you're going to heaven. Honestly, I don't believe anyone that ever meets Jesus thinks you can sin like crazy, and that would be anything but hell. If you've ever met Jesus and then you sin like crazy, welcome to hell. I don't mean when you die. I mean right now. And there's no one that's ever met him that thinks anything otherwise. I think I know what I'm talking about. Because I've done a couple circles in hell myself. And so have you. And so I don't buy it anymore. That what this Broadway is is this lazy man's Christianity. No, I think it's a lazy man's Christianity. I think it's a Christianity that gets its sermons off the news and magazines, and Facebook, and Twitter, and does whatever it needs to do to get by, and build churches, and build ministries, and succeed. Everything except doing to others you'd have them doing to you, because that would be hard. That would be a hard way to build a church. Doing to others you'd have them doing to you, that's a hard way to live. That's a narrow bridge to walk across. Proverbs 14, 12, 14 says this. This is a text that gets quoted with straight gate narrow way a lot. I'm going to do the same thing, but with a little different twist. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
Even in laughter, the heart may sorrow, and the end of earth, mirth may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. I like this right um, If you really want to get close to the Hebrew, you should write this word in with an ink pen. Right here, himself, period. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above himself. I like that. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cool little twist right there at the end. My satisfaction can only come from above myself because there's a way that seems right to me that's the way of destruction. It seems right because it makes logical sense that I just do whatever I have to do to survive. But the man that knows better doesn't know better by looking into himself. He knows better by looking above himself. He knows better by looking to a higher way than the way he has chosen. There's a way that leads to death, and then there's another way. And what would that other way look like? Do unto others you'd have them do unto you. Think of this. Jesus took all of this teaching and he flipped it. He turned it into a positive command. He turned it into an active command. It's not don't, don't, don't. It's do unto as you'd have it done to you. This is indicative of how Jesus viewed the law. Please catch this. I know I'm, I know I'm, I mean, we haven't actually went that long. But, but I, of everything I've said tonight, I want to land where I worked on this today to say this is where I got to land because this to me is one of the most vital things. And I want everyone to pay attention that follows this ministry, that's walked down this road with me of preaching grace and the finished work, that understands that you're liberated. I just want to take you into a revelation that I've only in the last couple years at the most walked into and I've walked into it with this group all right more than ever and it's this thought this is just me working some of this out so it's not the whole thing but it's getting there this is indicative of how Jesus viewed the law when the law is no more than a system of restraint it chokes but when the law is a system of action there's the possibility of fulfillment of the law even in you. Why? What did Paul say in Galatians? We used this earlier. Galatians 5.14. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfilling of the law. He wrote the same thing in the book of Romans. To fulfill the law. Jesus said the whole law and the prophets is not passive, it's active. It's due to others as you'd have them due to you. Remember when we did this? This whole thing is trying to get you to do to others as you'd have them to do to you. So when the law is a system of action, it points you outward at your neighbor, treat them better. When the law becomes a system of restraint, don't do this, 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 it kills you. It chokes the life out of you. You cannot be righteous. You cannot be free because all you got is a bunch of rules over your head that goes, this is how high you got to jump, this is how you got to act. And that's why we cannot be preaching the law for righteousness. But we do need to go back into the law and the prophets to remind, yes, even Christians, that God's heart was always doing to others you'd have them doing to you. Jesus didn't just come up with that, you know, up until this point. It's dog eat dog. But here's a new commandment I give you. 
Do unto others you haven't done to you. No, 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 it's not a new commandment. It's the, it's the thing my dad's been trying to tell you guys the whole time. Do to the other people the way you wish they would do to you. So let me land with Paul because Paul's really what got me going on the whole journey of grace was Paul, the apostle, and his understanding of the law. So look at this final passage from Romans 7, verses 5 and 6. And I know this is not where you think you'll land when you do the golden rule, but you do when you listen to me teach it, all right? When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Just look at that fifth verse for a moment. When we were in our flesh, he doesn't just mean this because that wouldn't make any sense. That would indicate he's not still this. And of course he is. That's why he's writing. But he means when we were not regenerated spirit men, when we were not in Christ, Romans 6, baptized into his death, raised into his life. Before that, because before that moment where we were baptized into Christ, we accepted his death as our death, all of our sinful passions were aroused by the law, and all it did was kill us. Why were those passions aroused by the law? What passions is he talking about? Love your neighbor? God says to you, love your neighbor as yourself. Did that rile you up? Your passions went crazy? Because God went, treat the stranger the way you would treat your family. Oh boy, that's got me wanting to sin. No, we know better because Paul's not talking about the law that led you to love your neighbor. He's talking about the law that told you, don't do this, 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 don't do this. And there's a bunch of them throughout the Old Testament. And if you get locked into that, you think that all this is doing is stealing your fun. And Paul said, when we were in our flesh, our sinful passions kept being aroused by restrictive law. Don't, 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 don't. He went, man, if you don't want me to do this, it must be fun. Something's up. I got to figure out why that door says do not enter. I'm going to find out what's on the other side of that door. If it kills me, because there must be something really cool over there. That's why that law exists to keep me out of there. All right. And all it does is lead to death. But now we've been delivered from the law. So obviously now, we don't need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now we don't need to do unto others we'd have them do unto you. No, because what's Paul talking about? We've been delivered from the restrictions of the law. We're never delivered from the fulfillment of the law. What's the fulfillment of the law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others you'd have them do unto you. Jesus said this is the law and the prophets. So when Paul talks about the law that chokes, he's not talking about the Old Testament alone. He's talking about those laws of restraint that say, don't, don't, don't. We've been delivered from that law. We died to what we were held by so that we should serve. Why? Please get this. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling through this. I really want to say this right, and I'm trying to say it right, but there's a lot I'm wrestling with to say it right. Why would Paul throw in the word serve if he's done? If, there, if it doesn't matter what you do now that you've been set free from the law. Why throw in the word serve? We still serve in the newness of the spirit. We just don't serve in the oldness of the letter of the law. In other words, whatever the Holy Spirit was trying to do in the Old Testament, he's now trying to do in you. What was he trying to do? Therefore... Do unto others you'd have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. What's God trying to get us to do? 
love our neighbor as ourselves, do to others the way we'd have them do to us. That's what the whole Old Testament is trying to tell me. If I pay attention, I would realize that I'm not off the hook now that I've met Jesus. Now, I'm in the Spirit. The Spirit, not the old letter of the law, the Spirit is still leading me, not in the restriction, for it is for freedom He has set me free. And how do I express it? By doing what the Holy Spirit was trying to get me to do back here, and that was treat you the way I wish you'd treat me. Now, guess what? Not very many people are going to pick it. Why? Because you got to look for it. Straight as the gate, narrows the way, it leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Why so few find it? Because it ain't no fun to walk that road. It's a whole lot easier to just treat people the way, you, the way they treat you, not the way you wish you would be treated. And in that understanding, it forces me back to my knees, forces me back to my Savior. I do serve you, but I don't serve you in the oldness of the letter. Serve you in the newness of the Spirit. And what the newness of the Spirit is saying to me is not, Paul, stop this, stop this, stop this. The newness of the Spirit is showing me this world out here and going, you are not passive, you are active. So treat your neighbor in the way you wish you could be treated in the world. And your natural response will probably sound something like this. If I do this, a lot of people are going to run over me. And my response to you is, that's why few there be that find it. It's a narrow gate. What did you think you were signing up for? The easy way? The most popular way? But we're following Jesus into that way. Golden rule, golden key, call it what you will. What it is is you're hoping to see the world transformed into the place you'd like to live because you drop the seeds of the kingdom in it. The kingdom doesn't just react. The kingdom is active. Father, thank you. We've tried. <laughs> we wrestled with things way bigger than me. And I think all we've done is just kind of ran the flashlight over it a few times. Not to where people can really grasp it, but where they can just see something there that they might want to go look at. If that's the case, at least that's the case. And Father... Show us clearly through your son what it is you'd have us to know. I, I, I so badly want to, lock, to constantly and in every way walk that narrow way. And it isn't by cleaning up certain moral codes or doing what the, the church world says. No, it's simply, simply doing what is not simple to do. And that is to treat others the way I'd like to be treated. And if in that is all the law and the prophets, I'm going to mess it up, but you fulfilled the law. You didn't mess it up. My righteousness is in you not messing it up. But that doesn't get me off the hook of loving my neighbor. And I accept that and, and pray that I'll allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in me in, in Jesus' name. Amen.